we conclude James this morning. Hopefully, this is an epic conclusion to what I think is an epic book. It may be a walk, but we're going to... It was a baseball analogy, and I didn't give any context. Sorry. But, but hopefully, you can understand and understand the conclusion of James. But let me rehearse some things so that if you're new or if you've been with us this whole time, like I need to bring you up to, to, to speed of where we've been and what's going on and then what, what James is doing when he gets into these last few verses. And he concludes on a pretty abrupt note. And so I'm going to just walk through a few verses. James 4, 7, he said, submit to God, draw near to God, and God will draw near to you. One second. James 1, 18, by God's own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his <clears throat> creatures. James 1, 26, if anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he de deceives himself. 122, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Then last week we saw him clearly communicate the Lord's going to return and the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And then after all of this, he concludes with this kind of rat-a-tat-tat, -tat, three specific instructions. So look at verse 13, James 5, verse 13. If you need a Bible, they're under your chairs or in front of you, in a chair, or whatever you have. James 5, I'd love for you to see it. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. James 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. That's what I meant, rat-a-tat-tat. Suffering, pray. Cheerful, sing praises. Sick, call for the elders to pray for you. Now this, James, is specifically addressing certain groups of people. And this is very specific. But if you think about, this is what Paul does in 1 Thessalonians 5 in general. What does he say? Pray without ceasing. And what does James say here with all three different categories that he expresses? He's saying pray. Because praise is pray, prayer. And so if you're, if you're suffering, pray. If you're cheerful, pray. Praise. If you're sick, ask someone else to pray for you. This is the, the clarity. And so if you're suffering, pray. So in this, if you, if you know where we've been, how you know a little bit of the context of the people that James is writing to, you know they're suffering, most likely being oppressed, most likely being pushed down uh, by the rich rulers around them, being taken advantage of and possibly persecuted. And he's saying, all right, I've been telling you this, I've been telling you this, but I'll end with this. If you're suffering, pray. I mean, if you're suffering, keep praying. Keep crying out to God. Lament. Grieve your suffering to God. Now think of the alternatives. Maybe not the alternatives that James would say, but the alternatives that we take. If anyone is suffering, she should drink herself to sleep. She should numb her pain with some substance. Is anyone among you suffering? He should escape with a hobby or a game. 
he should accuse God of being unloving. No, simply and beautifully, James instructs us to pray, to turn to God even in our suffering. Or what we just saw in verse 11, draw near to him. Trusting, knowing, believing that he's going to draw near to us. Share your feelings with him. Take your, your complaints and your questions to him. Keep, keep asking for him to intervene. Keep knocking on the door. Ultimately, trusting his word over your feelings. So in your, in your sin or your suffering, we should let both of those be a springboard to prayer. This is faith in action, as James would talk about. Faith working. That's what lamenting is. Lamenting before God reveals a heart of faith. A heart that believes, maybe not tremendously, not this overabundance faith that just rah, 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 but, but maybe this simple, small, fledgling faith that you're still holding on to, that God is compassionate and merciful. And the sovereign ruler. This means a current cultural value, cynicism, is an enemy to prayer. A cynical heart, a cynical attitude, a cynical disposition is an enemy to prayer. When we fail to pray, as Christians, we are functional deists. We are communicating to the Lord that, yeah, you're there, but you're really far away and you don't really care about us. You're not concerned about the day-to-day. You're not concerned about me, your child. But the truth is, we live in a fathered world that he is working even in your suffering for your sanctification for your growth that's what a father does and that's what he's doing so you you can when he says suffering prayer i can only imagine i just know my own suffering i know many of your suffering i know how, how uh, often we put on a mask in our suffering. And I don't mean in 95, I mean a facade. I mean a facade. And we fake it until we make it with other people, but you know what we tend to do in that? Do the same with God. Throw up shallow, half-hearted prayers or hiding things from him like he's not aware of it. Like he's not the one that knows the depths of your heart more than you do. And so when he's saying, if any of you are suffering, go to God, pray to God, take your mask off and go to the Father and cry out to him honestly in the midst of your suffering. Not, not only can you take off your mask, but the Holy Spirit here in James is inviting you to do so. That intimate Prayer in the midst of suffering like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that lays your heart bare before your Father. This is the 
encouragement, the instruction, the wisdom from James. And then the second category, he says, if you're cheerful, sing praises. Now, again, this is prayer. Direct your mouth to God. To connect what he said previously means control your tongue and bless the Lord with your words. Sing to him. Now, logically, this makes sense to me that if not the Lord, we regularly turn to one thing if we're suffering, if we're cheerful, or we're sick. Like each of us have probably that one thing that we go to no matter what it is. Google, books, alcohol, friends, isolation. There's, there's that kind of one thing that if we're suffering, we go to it. But also when we're cheerful, we go to it. And also when we're sick, we go to it. And James is saying, yeah, yeah, let that one thing be replaced with the one thing, the one God who knows you and loves you and is for you. That in each instance, it is direction, prayer to the Lord. In your car, in your home, doing the dishes, sing praises to Jesus. Sing praises. Like let your cheerfulness, let your joy explode into praise. Throw your affection, your delight on Jesus. Pour it out. Some of you guys have these, this, this suffering in your past that has wounds and you've built up walls to self-protect yourself. And so, so you have a threshold of, uh, of affection that it only stays here and here and it won't get past this certain point in the highs and won't get per this certain point in the lows. And, and that, that wall, that dam needs to break so that you can pour out incessantly, beautifully, overwhelming the affection that the Lord deserves from you. If you're cheerful, sing praises. Not if you're cheerful, you know, kind of go around and, and continue to mute your affections. Continue to uh, dull your affections. Maturity in Christianity is not a dulling of affections, but a rising of your affections and placing them on the one who deserves all of them. That's maturity. Not an asceticism where like everything's fine all the time. Oh, I hate my life. Everything stinks, but I'm okay. I'm going to make it through. I don't act like anything is a, 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 a foot. No, it is to deal with the wounds and the suffering and the pain with the Lord. Grieve it. Run to him as your only hope in life and death and pour out your cheerful heart on the one who is the happy God forever and ever. Let your joy explode into praise. If you're cheerful, sing praises. Number three, if you're sick, have the elders pray for you. Just take this straight to our context. Ask us pastors to pray for you. We love praying for you. We are not too busy to pray for you. This is going to be a weird word because I'm about to leave for three months on a sabbatical. But can you, can I ask you to do something? This is my last sermon, so I feel like I can go off my notes all I want. Yeah? Okay. Can 
I tell you what my schedule is instead of you thinking you know what my schedule is? It hurts my heart when people tell me, I was going to, like after the fact, I was going to talk to you, but I know you're too busy. Do you? You don't know my calendar. You don't know the rhythms of my life that I've put in place so that I can be present with you, meaning you're my calendar. Side note, what I'm trying to get at is we love you. We want to pray for you. We're not too busy for you. We're like old school doctors. We even make house calls. That's what we do. We love praying expectantly for God to heal. We have oil in our pockets, oil on the stage every Sunday so that we can anoint you, so that we can obey James 5. Anoint with oil and pray that the Lord would heal you. Now, is the oil magic or medicinal? No, it symbolizes what, what consecration happened in the Old Testament. It symbolized setting apart someone for God's special attention and care in this moment. That we would say, Lord, would you see them? We, we're setting the part that you would see them and care for them and heal them in this moment. We believe wholeheartedly that in the new heavens and new earth, you're going to heal their body fully. But will you bring that future reality into the present? Will you do that to them now? Will you take this chronic pain away? Will you take this suffering away? Will you, will you touch their, their bodies like you did when you were on earth in which you make them whole. That's James' three categories, but he goes further on the sick. So I'll go on further about the sick. Verse 15, James 5, verse 15. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Verse 17, Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again. And the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Take this at face value. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. This is why we pray expectantly, because we know who God is, and we know his power, and we know his desires. That, that today, God can heal, that God delights to heal, that God heals in the present day. And so if you're sick this morning or any other Sunday morning or throughout the week, or you have a, a chronic health problem, come to one of the elders after our gathering, before the gathering, during the gathering, and ask us to pray for you. Like we, we hear James' words, and we, the four of us, want to be doers and not hearers only as well. We want to pray for you. And when we pray... We pray similar to Daniel. God, you're able to heal. God, you will heal. 
And if you don't, we still won't bow down to any other gods. You are our God. Why? Because the Lord, back to last week, the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Healing, present-day healing, physical uh, health healing is an expression of God's mercy. This means we don't view it as a right. Healing is not the payment of a debt. God does not owe us healing. We don't deserve healing. I believe we should have faith for healing, but there's a vast difference between faith in God's mercy and presumption based on alleged right. If you're not following me, I'll let Sam Storms help me help you. People often confuse praying expectantly with praying presumptuously. Prayer is presumptuous when the person claims healing without revelatory warrant or on the biblical assumption that God always wills to heal. This then requires them to account for the absence of healing by an appeal either to moral failure or deficiency of faith, usually in the one for whom prayer is offered. People pray expectantly when they humbly petition a merciful God for something they don't deserve, but that he delights to give. Expectant prayer flows from the recognition that Jesus healed people because he loved them and felt compassion for them, a disposition that nothing in Scripture indicates has changed. The primary reason God healed people through Jesus prior to Pentecost is because he's a merciful, merciful, compassionate God. The same reason that God heals people after Pentecost is that he is a merciful and compassionate God. Nothing has changed. He hasn't changed. That means he's worthy of our faith, worthy of our belief, worthy of our expectant prayers. The prayers of faith. The prayer of faith will save. It's very powerful in its effect. Now, in the text, it's not clear if, if this prayer of faith is the persons that's being prayed for or the elders who are praying for them. We're not sure. But what I am sure of that when it comes to how faith and healing work, uh, we love extremes. <laughs> we just love extremes. Uh, on one side, we'll say, you aren't healed because you don't have enough faith. And the only faith God honors is altogether devoid of doubt. And so you don't have a pure faith. You still have a little bit of doubt. And so until you root all that doubt out, then God will only honor that. Go away. Come back when it's full. And then on the other side, people will say, uh, faith is irrelevant to whether God will heal or not. What? Okay. Those extremes are extremely wrong. Let's not, let's not fall into those. We love extremes, I think, because we want our Christianity to be simple and black and white rather than mysterious and with tension. But the Bible is full of tension and mystery that you have to hold on to. That you have to not, like, oh, I'm just going to simplistically resolve this. Like, I'm just going to have to hold on to this, trusting that he's in control and he's for me. So the New Testament 
to think about and try to answer these two extremes. Uh, there's instances where there's no faith present when Jesus heals someone. Meaning the whole gospel of John has no connection or no uh, following of this person had faith and then Jesus healed them. Zero instances of that. But then in most cases in the other gospel, Jesus, when Jesus healed, it was in response to someone's faith. Think about the case of the particular paralytic. It was only when Jesus saw the faith of his friends that he healed the man. Jesus restored the sight to two blind men according to their faith. Both of those are in Matthew 9. The interesting thing about this incident is that Jesus didn't ask them if they had faith in his will to heal, but only if they believed that he was able to heal. Do you believe I'm able to heal you? That's what he's asking. He's not asking, do you think it's my will always to heal everyone at all times? That's not what he's asking. Do you, do you want 100% guarantee that I will heal you in this moment? No. He asks, do you believe I'm able to heal you? We are not told it's always God's will to heal the sick. I mean, you got Paul who prayed more audacious prayers than us and his mentee in the faith, Timothy, is sick. And he doesn't say there's some deficient faith in you. He says, drink some wine for your stomach. Jesus was concerned that they believed he was able to heal. And so when you think about our faith in, in connection with healing, it's also not the the quantity or, or even the purity of your faith that is the main issue. The main issue is the object of your faith. Is what, what is your faith in? Not on a scale of 1 to 10, how big is your faith? Sam Storms again. If we should ask why faith appears to play such a crucial role in our response to God, it isn't because God is otherwise lacking and our faith supplies him with the incentive or power to do for us what we ask. Faith is required because faith glorifies God. It re redirects our spiritual and emotional energy away from self and to the God who sustains us. Faith is not a force that compels God to act or in any sense creates our own reality. It's an expression of weakness and utter dependency. The focus of faith is not in our ability to believe, but in God's ability to do what otherwise seems impossible. It is not the mere fact of faith, but it's focus that brings results. The, the object of our faith is not our belief, but our merciful God. We don't have faith in our faith. We have faith in our faithful God. That's where our faith is focused. That's the object. That's what Jesus is calling for in his ministry. That's what James is saying in this moment, in this passage. Now, we have to keep breaking down this text a little bit more because there's a lot in it. I already tell you, he's, he's short, pithy, and practical, but sometimes it's like, bro, could you have... Could you have given us like 
four to 20 more sentences to unpack this. Like, we need some help. Because he's talking about healing, healing of the sick, praying for the sick. And James's take is that sickness can be a result of sin. That's in harmony with Jesus and the Apostle Paul. But they're clear that not all sin is a direct result of sin. But it can be. It can be. So when James says, if the sick person has committed sins, he will be forgiven, it means if sin were responsible for his sickness, the fact that God healed him physically would be evidence that God had forgiven him spiritually. That this, this, in this case, if there was sin that was connected to the sickness, and then in God, in this prayer, God heals, he's also forgiving. And to tell us to confess our sins when other means as pastors, we do ask the person who's sick if there's any unconfessed sin in their life before we pray for them. And we tell them to talk to the Lord about to confess the Lord. It also may mean that that person needs to confess their sin that they've committed against others. Maybe it's jealousy or unforgiveness or bitterness or any other, other way they've sinned against another person. Now, this is a hard pill to swallow, but I think he's dead on. And why I keep quoting, because he's more succinct than I can be. Sam Sorn says, what this tells us is that God has chosen to suspend healing mercy on the repentance of his people. When the hurting don't get healed, now hear this, because his first statement is not a universal truth. When the hurting don't get healed, it may be a result of stubbornness and spiritual insensitivity. We can't say that every time, like if God didn't heal you in this moment, well, it's because of your stubbornness and spiritual energy. Like we can't make that just brass uh, condemnation on someone when we don't actually know what's happening. But to be clear, based on James 5, it could be happening. It could be happening. It may be a result that there's this discipline from the Lord and what it looks like for you is suffering. And what he wants is for that suffering to lead you in his kindness to repentance. And so that in his will, he's connected these two. And so that then, and you're actually dealing with the sin and turning to him, he's going to heal you physically. It may be a result. And let me highlight this wisdom for everyday life. It's the only time in the New Testament that we are commanded to confess our sins to another. But we're commanded to confess our sins to another. We are to be a community that confesses our sin to one another and prays for one another. If, if you don't have a person or people in your life in this church who you confess your sins to, then you're in danger of wondering like James talks about in the last two verses. Straying from the truth. Because walking in the light, exposing our sin, is a gift of fellowship. And confessing our sin to strengthens our fellowship. 
Fellowship, that intimate sharing of uh, our lives with one another. Is there something much more intimate in your friendships than this? And confessing sin and praying for one another? I don't know if there is. I think we know this beautiful intimacy when we actually get to sit down and pray with one another and pray for one another. And the good news, the beautiful news, the like amazing quote here is that the prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Our prayers are very powerful. Our God is for us and is merciful and is compassionate and he's all powerful. So God, what James is telling us is we if you think about the context, you're not just throwing out empty phrases to the gods. This is his culture and his context around him. He's saying, no, no, this God, the true God, the God of the Bible, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, actually is alive, knows us, hears us, and can do miraculous, beautiful things in us. Our prayers can change our hearts. Our prayers can change other people's hearts. Our prayers can heal people. Our prayers can reconcile relationships. Our prayers can reignite marriages. Not because we say them, but because who we say them to, the Lord Almighty. This, this is the beautiful reality that prayer is very powerful. And James knows that some of you are like, mm, I got some pushback. Not me. My prayers aren't powerful. I'm too immature. I don't have that spiritual gift. I'm not great at praying. And James is like, okay, I hear you. I knew, what you're, I knew you were going to object to this. You are human just like Elijah. And Elijah prayed, and God turned off the showers for three and a half years. You're a person just like he was a person. And that's how powerful the effect can be of your prayers. And you're like, oh, but Elijah's a prophet. And James is like, I don't care. He's a person. You're a person. You're talking to the same God. You're asking of the same God. Our God is in the heavens, and he does whatever he pleases. And as his children, it pleases him to answer our audacious prayers. And like Jesus, we pray expectantly, we pray audaciously. We also know that not our will, but God's will be done. That means we still keep asking expectantly. And then to James' abrupt conclusion. Verse 19. No greetings, no kisses, just signing off. Verse 19. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Oh, what a James conclusion that is. 
It's like, boom, done, period, move on. But also in the sense of don't just do all that I've told you. Don't just follow all the wisdom that I've said in this book, but help others do the same. Help others do the same. This last, I know it's particularly focused on wondering, but you, you just get this overall vibe of like, you, you got to look around. Yes, yes, you're a disciple. Yes, you're maturing as a disciple, but a mature disciple looks like a discipler. So he says, if anyone is straying from the gospel, walking away from the truth of Jesus, walking away from following Jesus, then chase him down. Lovingly pursue them. Why? Because that's what Jesus has done to you. That's what. He left his throne, was born in a manger to pursue you, to come after you, to rescue you from death and cover your sins, to forgive you. So the gospel, the good news of that to you, empowers us to pursue others, to go after. Paul says it this way in Galatians 6, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. And so you take these two together and you've got the clear admonition from James of go chase them down. And you got the helpful like tone and heart of when you get to them and talk to them with a gentle spirit from Paul. The spirit of God in us working in our new heart means we are merciful and compassionate like our God. You're a new creation, family. You have the merciful, compassionate spirit of God in you and with you. Leading you, teaching you, guiding you. We are merciful and compassionate like the good shepherd who left the 99 and chase down the one lost. So when it, when it comes down to this church family, to our brothers and sisters, we don't say it's not my problem. Should I say that again? We don't say that's not my problem. We are a family. It is our problem. It's much easier to say it's not problem and to adhere to a very radical individualistic worldview when, the, the, when it gets real tough and just say, ah, well, to each their own. They're going to do what they're going to do. I can't, I can't, it's not my thing. Jesus' love compels us to pursue wanderers. It is our problem. It is our family. James's book. It's my last note. It's just full of wisdom, but it's also brilliant, brilliantly written. 
Like what I see in conclusion, in, the, in, in this book's conclusion, and then overall, is that it, it encapsulates or maybe it exemplifies the Great Commission. What does he do? He writes to give us practical wisdom as disciples of Jesus, encourages us to practice the spiritual disciplines, to serve others, to be in community with God's people, to, to be lifelong learners. But then with these two verses, it just encapsulates the Great Commission to say, and then we also turn and disciple others. That's maturity. That's maturity. If you feel like maybe in your sanctification, you, you don't have a target that you're aiming at, if you don't know where you're going in your discipleship, it is in a way to be able to grow and to follow Jesus in the way of Jesus and then be able to turn and disciple others in the way of Jesus. Does that, that mean you have to be a pastor? No. It doesn't mean you have to lead a community group. No. It, it means that you intentionally connect with, pursue, and pour into other disciples. That's maturity. So let me take all this and try to just succinctly reinstate it. Because the Lord is merciful and compassionate, we pray confess our sins, and we pursue the wanderers. That's how James ends. That's how we end. Let's pray for it. Father, I ask that you would do this in us. Maybe first, Lord, we would sink into the reality that you are merciful and compassionate. And maybe we need to sink into that personally, meaning you are merciful and compassionate to me. Not, not just an attribute that we intellectually assent to, about you, but we know that that aspect, that attribute of you is directed towards us. You're merciful and compassionate to me. Spirit, would you help us hear that and embrace that and feel that? such specific instructions from James I just I pray that you would be speaking to each one of us and that you would lead us to to respond to you specifically in prayer and confession maybe maybe at the least checking on another brother and sister we're pursuing the wonder in Christ's name